Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Let me, let me catch you up on where we've been. Uh, last week was our one year anniversary from launch, and so we, uh, we took a little break from what we were doing. But up to that point, we had been talking about the concept of evangelism and trying to inform uh, ourselves on the doctrine of salvation, really, in order to empower our evangelism. The thought was, as we finished up the book of Colossians several weeks back, that Paul said, we need to be ready that when God opens the door, we need to have the answer. We need to know what the gospel is, we need to know it clearly and concisely, and we need to be able to present it to those who God puts in front of us who want to know what this hope is that we have within us. And so as we finished up Colossians, we, we jumped over into this thing of, okay, let's be clear as to what the gospel is. Let's, let's, let's nail it down. And so what we did was we took a little journey through uh, a few books in the Old Testament. You remember we looked at uh, the book of Joshua and the nation of Israel crossing the Jordan River. And I put the map up and I showed you that even in the geography, God has painted on his creation a portrait of his grace and mercy. That we saw the nation of Israel pass these judgment waters that they could never pass themselves. And that God held back judgment so that they could get across. And we saw the gospel in that crossing in his army. By all accounts, he had it made by the standard of this world. But you remember, he had one problem. Stuff started falling off the guy. He had leprosy and he realized, hey, I'm dying. And we paralleled that to how we start to realize at some point in our life, We need to come to the realization that, hey, something has gone horribly wrong and we're dying. And that something that's gone horribly wrong is sin. And sin will take us to our death and we're going to have to face God. And we saw that Naaman was ordered by the prophet of God, just as we listen to the prophet of God in the New Testament. Naaman was ordered to not do works, but to act according to faith. Go and dip yourself seven times in that Jordan River. And he had to do what looked like foolishness. In the eyes of this world. But he had to trust the prophet. Then you remember I, uh, I took you on a little bit of journey through the New Testament. Some of the words of salvation. We talked about justification. We talked about redemption. Substitution. Uh, we talked about some of those words that the New Testament uses to help us understand what exactly has God done. I mean, has he just forgiven us? Has he just plucked us out of you know, the waters that we're drowning in and that's it? No, it's a complicated and, and it's a deep... Uh, It's a deep doctrine that we we tried to dig into a little bit to see the depths of God's love, the extent that he would go to. What his justice required, what he had to do so that he could overlook our sin. Well, this week, uh, this is going to be the last week on talking about a whole lot of the concepts in the New Testament. We'll get to those, okay? The gospel is going to be a recurring theme around here. But here's where I want to end up with you in regards to having a clear understanding of what God has done in our life. And how we apply that to evangelism. The topic I want to discuss with you is the age-old question that at some point all of us who have come to Christ ask. Can I lose my salvation? And if we did a show of hands, everyone has probably asked the question. Can I lose my salvation? I mean, can I mess this thing up? And at some point, maybe we've wrestled with that, maybe we've come to a conclusion. But today I want, us to, uh, I want us to look at one passage in particular, Romans 5. And I could have taken you to uh, over a dozen passages to address this situation. And we're not even going to get to spend a whole lot of time in Romans 5. We could spend weeks in Romans 5, let alone on the topic of the security of your salvation. But we're going to just address this quickly and we're going to go on to something else. We're going to start next week in the Luke and Parables. But here's what I want to tell you, that if we don't nail down this concept of the security of our salvation, 
that what God has done is done, then we're going to be floundering. Let me read you this illustration here. During the initial construction on the Golden Gate Bridge, no safety devices were used and 23 men fell to their deaths. For the final part of the project, however, a large net was used as a safety precaution. At least 10 men fell into the net and were saved from certain death. Pretty good. Even more interesting, however, is the fact that 25% more work was accomplished after the net was installed. Did you catch that? 25% more work was accomplished after the net was installed. Why? Because on some level, I, I feel like that's us as a church. We need to be able to wholeheartedly give ourselves to the project. To this thing of evangelism. But we need to know ourselves that we are secure. We need to understand that God has placed this safety net. And that we cannot fall to our death. Amen? So that's where we're going here. Romans 5. You know, all children, they say, as you're raising young children... One of, the, one of the character traits that they need to say they need to see in their parents is the trait of security. The child needs to know that their parent loves them. It's part of their healthy development. And that's what God wants to do with us. He wants, to, he wants us to know that He is there and He's not going to leave us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. That He has that safety net under us. We'll look at Romans 5. We're going to start in verse 1. We're going to go down through 11. And we're going to, uh, we're going to follow... Paul's logic here. In the first four chapters of the book of Romans, uh, Paul has, in essence, got you lost. He's told you why you are a sinner and why all of us, Jews and Gentiles, are condemned before the righteousness and the justice of God. So we're all in the same boat, Paul says. Uh, Chapters 3 and 4, he basically tells us how to get saved. And so when we get to chapter 5, he's assuming that now you've come to the saving knowledge of Christ. Okay, And so that's where you are in the salvation story of the book of Romans. Now look look where he goes in Romans chapter 5. There Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction, or some of your translations may say access, by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Uh, in our legal system, what Paul's talking about here is what we call double jeopardy. Uh, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know all the ins and outs of this. If you want to you talk to a liar, find Jack after this and you, you make sure I'm right. I wouldn't, I'm not going to ask you, Jack. I'm not going to put you on the spot because I'm afraid you're going to prove me wrong here. And you're going to mess up my whole illustration. So you just sit there and be quiet. Double jeopardy, you guys may know this. Double jeopardy in our legal system is the idea that you cannot go on trial for the same crime twice once the gavel has fallen. Once the judge has declared your guilt or your innocence, you cannot go on trial for that same crime again. Now, there are certain ways they can, they can do different things. In fact, that you can, if you are, uh, if you are declared guilty, part of the grace that's built into our system is that you can appeal that. You can appeal that. But once you are declared innocent, once O.J. was innocent, no matter what evidence popped up later, O.J. is free. Okay? And we call it double jeopardy. That when you are called into the courts, you are in jeopardy of the sentencing of the judge. And the idea is you cannot be in jeopardy twice for the same crime. Once the gavel falls... And he has declared you innocent. You are innocent. And you are free to go. Paul says that we have been, past tense, justified by 
faith. You remember when we talked about some of those New Testament words? I told looks at us and says, hey, I forgive you. I overlook your sins. No, it's more than that. It's the idea that we go to court and God declares us, the holy, righteous judge of all the world declares us totally absolved of the crime. We're not just forgiven, we are totally innocent. When he sees us, he does not see us as a criminal. He sees us as clean, pure, and holy. Why? Because Christ steps before us. So Paul says, can we lose our salvation? Well, we need to understand something. We have been justified. When God looks at us now that we are saved, He doesn't see our sins, He sees Christ, and it's just as if we had never sinned at all. And He has forgiven us past, present, and future. You cannot stand before the court of God any longer for those crimes. Fire has already fallen. In Texas, uh, there's this phenomenon that happens frequently in Texas. It gets really dry, and the ground gets really dry because it's so hot. And often the uh, wildfires will start, prairie fires will start. And there's a story of these guys that were out hunting I don't know, shooting quail or something. And they were out in this field, and then one of these wildfires started up, and it just swept across the field of dry grass because it was so hot and dry, there was no moisture, and it just took off. And one of the guys, thinking, reached into his pocket and grabbed matches. Matches. It's a fire. Why are you going to grab matches? Here's what he did. He told all of his happens when the wildfire comes towards them. There's nothing left to burn. Can you lose your salvation? Can the fire of God fall in the same place twice? Paul says no. It can't. There's a hill outside of Jerusalem where the justice and the righteousness and the condemnation and the wrath fell on a man. And if we see fit to fall on our knees at the feet of that man on that hill outside of Jerusalem... The next time the wildfire of God's judgment comes, we stand in a place where the fire of God's judgment has already fell. And it can't burn there any longer. You see what he's saying? We have already been justified by faith. God has already done it. Look at what he says we have here. Because of this justification, we have peace with God. This is not peace from God. He says we have peace with God. Between you and God, once you are saved, there is a peace that is provided by justification through faith. And so you are no longer at odds with God. He no longer has a case against you. Amen? The gavel has fallen. You've been declared innocent. He will not try you for the same crime twice. Fire has already fallen there. And now you have peace with God. Through the Lord Jesus Christ... Look at what else we have. Through whom we have also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Not only do we have peace, but he says we have this introduction into in grace. It's like God kicked open the door of heaven and said, Here, you now have access to free grace because of what he's done. We have been justified. God provides through that justification. Through Jesus Christ, he provides peace. Because our sins have been dealt with. And now we have been provided access or introduction to this grace in which Paul says we stand. We stand securely. Can you lose your salvation? 
No, God's kicked open the door for you and now you stand on this foundation of grace. It's good stuff. Look at what he says here at the end of verse 2. Another mark so that you know you are truly saved. He says, not only do we stand in this grace, we exult in the hope of the glory of God. That word exalt literally means boast. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. I've told you this before, that the idea of hope in Scripture is not the idea that we think of hope, where we think, hey, I hope it doesn't rain today. It's this wishful thinking. Hope in Scripture is this idea of uh, convinced, being fully convinced. Our hope is in what we are fully convinced of. Why? Because God has justified us. The gavel has fallen. The fire has fallen in this place. We now have peace with God. And so because of the facts of the case, we realize that we can have a confidence. We like the glory of God. The word doxa, glory, it means light. That in Scripture, Revelation says that in, in heaven there will be no sun. You, want, you know why there's not going to be any sun? Because the glory of God will shine light for us all to see. And we will be reflectors of that light. One day our life, the full culmination of our salvation, is that we will reflect the glory of God in heaven. Can you lose your salvation? No. We have a hope and a certainty that we will be part of the glorification of the saints for the sake of Christ. So past, present, and future. We have been saved. We are standing in grace. And we look forward to the day when we will be in glory. And we will help to glorify the one who has raised us up. Well, look at what he says here in verse 3 and 4. Verse 3, and not only this, but we also exalt, same word, in our tribulations. Knowing that the tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. What is another mark that you know you are a believer? That you know you are in the faith? Uh, Romans, uh, I believe it's 8, says that we know that we are sons uh, because the Spirit bears witness to us. And if we are sons, we are heirs. And if we are heirs, we are joint heirs with Jesus. If we suffer with Him, we will be glorified with Him. So there's this idea in Scripture that tells us that as believers, God chastens those whom He loves It is built into God's plan of our salvation and our glorification. He will burn out all the impurities in our life. How do you know you're a Christian? Because you're being tested. And when you're tested, we exalt as believers. We boast in those tribulations. Why? Because look at what it brings. Those tribulations prove something. They bring about perseverance. Literally, uh, or it says proven character in my translation. Literally, it brings about proof. You want proof for your salvation? Look through your tribulations. If God squeezes you, you can see, like you squeeze an orange, what is coming out? You get orange juice. If you squeeze a grapefruit, what comes out? Grapefruit juice. When God squeezes you, what comes out? Exaltations. The mark of the false convert is that when he is put under the pressure... That refining fire of the tribulations that God has ordained to be a part of our sanctification, the false convert flees. How do you know that you're truly in the faith? Because you remain under the load. Hupomone is the Greek word. It means to remain 
under. Isn't that a good picture? It's a guy carrying this large pack on his back. And it says, you remain under. That you haven't become a flash in the pan. You know what a flash in the pan is? In the Civil War, and they had the old muskets and whatnot. They'd load the gunpowder in there. They'd load the bullets in there. And they would get what was called sometimes a flash in the pan. It would be a dud. You'd get this big bang and this big... For a few weeks, after a few years, when the trials and tribulations are pressing in on them, we look around in the church and we say, where's old, what's his name? What happened to so-and-so? Well, they had this trouble in their marriage. And they just quit coming. Well, they had this, this, this illness in their family. And you know what? They just, they just quit coming. How do we know that we're in the faith? Because when the trials come, we exalt in the trials and we hold on for dear life. And you know what it does? It causes us to even look forward to the day that we will be with God. That's what trials do for the believer. We exalt in our tribulation, knowing the tribulation brings about perseverance, that we will remain under the load. And perseverance, proof, and proof, this confident hope. Well, verse 5 is a transition verse, and it's going to take us through the rest of verse 11. Now, I want you to see this because this is the pivotal verse. This is the focus of what I want to show you today. And hope does not disappoint. Literally, it does not put us to shame. Paul says that this hope, this confidence that you have placed in the God who has justified you, it is not in vain. He says later in 2 Timothy chapter 1, he says, These sufferings that I'm going through, I am not, ashamed, I am not being put to shame. For I know whom I have believed in, and I am persuaded that he is able to guard that which I have entrusted to him until that day. That I will not be put to shame. It's not that Paul was going to shame Christ. His confidence was that God was not going to shame him and be disappointed by what our God has done to justify us. Can we lose our salvation? God cannot disappoint us. And hope does not disappoint. And here's why. Because the love of God. Now I want you to circle that phrase. The love of God. Because it is the key phrase in the passage. Because the love of God has been poured out or shed abroad. Great picture here. Where is it shed abroad? Where is it poured out? Do you see it? Within our hearts through the Spirit who He has given to us. It's the idea of Romans 8 that the Spirit bears witness to our spirit that we could cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy. That there's this, there's this subjective, uh, for lack of a better term, feeling within us that we know that we are His. That we know the voice of our Shepherd. That we recognize it. That His Spirit has bared witness with our spirit. Billy Graham uh, gave this illustration. I remember getting the first devotional book that I ever got. And one of the, uh, one of the illustrations, the only illustration I remember out of the whole book, it was the story that he told of a small child flying a kite in the park. And a man comes up to this small child on this cloudy day as he's reeled his kite all the way out into the clouds. Comes up to this little boy and he says, Son, what are you doing? The little boy says, I'm flying a kite. And he says, well, you know, with all these clouds, how do you know your kite's still there? And we know that God is there. Though he may be in the clouds, every now and then our heart feels this tug. And that's how I know he is there. Verse 5 says, 
Can we lose our salvation? How do we know that we are believers? It's because God has placed in us this mysterious way of giving us a great big bear hug from our God. I can tell my son I love him a hundred times. But it's nothing like grabbing him and squeezing him and showing him that I love him with a hug. And that's what God has planted in us. How do we know that we are believers? Paul says God has implanted in us, bearing witness to our spirit, this mysterious way of God touching our heart, tugging on our heart, that we know on some level, and those of you who are believers, you know what I'm talking about here, because there aren't words to fully describe it, but you know that there is this, this, this something inside of you that bears witness that says, I know, I, I know, I know that I'm connected with my Father. Well, 6 through 11, we're going to go through this quickly. 6 through 11, he unfolds what he means by the love of God. And you know what? We got started late, and uh, I'm not going to keep you. We're two minutes over, and so you're going to have to come back next week. We'll do 6 through 11, and I'll tell you exactly what he means by the love of God. All right? Let's pray.